Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome. This episode is yet another collaboration, this time with the Berlin Festival Schall und Rausch, commissioned and hosted by the Komische Oper Berlin. And this collected a number of performances around what they called brand new music theatre, i.e. music theatre that was uh, not afraid or ashamed indeed to be popular, to be flirting with idioms of pop and rock and rave and dance and all sorts of popular forms of music, um, and also explored experimental and new ways of staging, such as a 12-hour durational um, performance that was a mixture of trance and exhibition and all sorts of things. In the course of this festival, I was uh, fortunate enough to host a panel discussion about the relationship of pop and sound, particularly in relation to theatre, and in the following you will hear this conversation and I will introduce my two guests, Duska Harosavljevic and Katja Luka. Uh, enjoy the episode. Thank you, Yulia, again for introducing uh, us and introducing uh, and actually getting getting me on board with this festival. Thank you to Rainer as well, very very much, and to the Komische Oper. First of all, for having this festival, I think it's very very good to really raise an interest for these forms of theatre, which are really in a, in a small niche, it seems, between the popular and the avant-garde and and, and all that. And I think it uh, it deserves a forum, and uh, this has proven to be a, a wonderful place for that. Um, the other, yes, yeah, indeed. <laughs> So now um, I, I welcome uh, my two guests here today. I'll start with uh, you because you had the longer journey to here. Um, I thought you were going to say a longer name. Oh, yeah, that's also true, actually. Uh, I've practiced for a while. So Dushka Radosavljevic is here. She's an academic. She's a critic. She's a dramaturg. Uh, she has Serbian roots, hence the, the name, uh, but has worked and, and researched and taught uh, and critiqued and watched theatre in the UK for a very long time. Uh, is now based in Lund in Sweden. Uh, she's worked on a range of topics, including ensemble theatre, uh, theatre making in the in, in current times, and most recently, and that's sort of the the strong connection to this panel and to this uh, topic, she's um, done it sort of a double bill. She's done a, a website which is called auralia.space. Uh, you can look it up and and get lost in it because it's very very rich in uh, um, in, in interviews and, and sort of making offs and, uh, salons, as you call them, and all sorts of wonderful conversations about, and this is the project title about aural and oral dramaturgy. So once spelled with an AU and once with an O. So the aurality and the orality of, of current theatre is captured there fantastically well. And that's been then accompanied or sort of, uh, yeah, researched and kind of developed into a book, into a monograph, which has come out uh, like three months ago, four months ago. Amongst other accolades, she's won the David uh, Bradby Tapra Research Prize in 2015, and most recently the Award for Excellent in Digital Scholarship. I didn't even know that existed, but I'm very impressed with that. And it's by the Association for Theatre in Higher Education and the American Society for Re Theatre Research. Katja Luca has also got a, a past on the stage, so a past as a as a theatre person. She she uh, worked as an actor um, and on stage, and she worked a lot also off stage as a cultural manager and as a curator. Everyone in Berlin, you will know that, uh, or you will know these places that I'm going to say. She's worked at the Kesselhaus, at the Kulturbrauerei. She's worked for the Carnival der Kulturen, for the Haus der Berliner Festspiele. 
And in 2012, excitingly, she was tasked by Klaus Wovereit to build the Music Board Berlin to infuse, as it says, new life into the pop music scene of Berlin. Uh, and she's now its director, and she's also, in the, in, as part of that, the curator of one of its important platforms, which is the Pop Kultur Festival. And two of the programmed events for Schall und Rausch, um, which was, are the two gig theater events yesterday, uh, Albertine Sages, uh, some of you may have been there, uh, and tonight for uh, Malonda. So those are two events that are co-commissioned co or co-produced uh, with the music board uh, and following sort of suggestions and recommendations by Katja, because that's two exciting Berlin artists who, who are featured here. So welcome, both of you. And I wanted to start with a little sound experiment, actually, because we want to talk about sound here today, and uh, we should sort of start by a small listening experiment. There's no no strings attached, there's no, there's no wrong answers. So what we'll do is we'll listen to a short sound clip of something, and we'll just I'll just ask you to tell me what you've heard. That's all I'll do. Great. What did you hear? <laughs> I should start. Sure. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, good evening. Um, as as far as I worked for the in the fields of the neue Musik, I would say it's the beginning of a Yannick Xenakis, maybe something like this. I don't know, but at the end, it's something like you can hear. I think you can hear these things on YouTube right now. And ah, okay. Yeah. I think so, it's an ASRM. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Wow, and I, I, I should have started because mine is a much, uh, <laughs> no, you know, a much more literal, kind of less uh, sophisticated response. Um, um, yeah, well, just a gramophone needle, right? On a, <laughs> going through the grooves, right? Fantastic. The, the, the point of the exercise was, of course, you both got it completely wrong, and that's absolutely fine. Um, it's small pebbles. It's small pebbles. Um, and it's actually from a CD which is sort of meant to, you know, be calming and soothing. It's a sort of a therapeutic CD. Um, so it's, it's, it's got no compositional value per se, but it's very interesting that you say it borders into, or it could be perceived as new music. Uh, and it's also interesting that you, you thought of a very technical device where it was a very sort of lo-fi or no-fi um, natural device. What I find interesting in talking about sound, and I think that that's the whole point of this very small experiment, is that it's very difficult to do so. Um, when we describe sound, so neither of you really described the sound. You described where you thought it came from or who authored it. You sort of placed it in a musical genre or you placed it in a particular technological uh, circumstance. So you filled that acousmatic gap, to use a big word, which is where you talk about something that you hear, but that you don't see, that you don't have the, the visuals, sort of the source for. And you try to attribute it and to, to, to try to get there and, and, and find it there. And that's something we do uh, very naturally. The other thing we, we tend to do is we compare it. We say it sounds a bit like, and then we compare it to something that we are either more familiar with or that we find as a reference point. 
But if you compare it, if you if we talked about a, a painting or an image, we would sort of be able to, you know, say there's a lot of green there, there's a house on the left hand side. There's, we could be quite descriptive about it for a very long time without resorting to it's a bit like monk or um, it's um, it's probably oil on on canvas. So we would not necessarily talk about that. So I found that quite interesting. Um, to attune us. I want to do one more short experiment. Uh, this is very short. It's literally a second. And uh, I just, uh, again, you, you, you're very welcome to be completely wrong about this. And we can have people shout out uh, if they want to. But I just want you to uh, find out what this is. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I thought this was so easy. It's just me. No, yeah, yeah. It's, it is easy in a way, but... Yeah. It? It? It's, it's Huey Lewis, the power yes. glass. Come yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Okay, this yeah. is a generational is. thing. I saw that in the, no, you know, the, yeah. which was the, the movie um, uh, Back to the Future, of course. That's the one. I, what I was trying to say is a good pop song you can, you can recognize after one second. Clearly that failed. But, uh, <laughs> but if I'd given you like three seconds, you would have all said, oh, this is that. And of course, it's a mixture of that very iconic chord, but it's also the sound that's sort of what I tried to <laughs> and failed proving that um, you know pop records in particular are very much you can detect you know, even if you don't know necessarily what the band is what the name is you know where you've heard that way where, where, where that's from so in that sense I, I want to open with what do you associate with I think the two terms that were or three terms that we're dealing with tonight here is one is pop one is sound and one is theater and we're trying to sort of connect where do they have overlaps and things in common I think pop is a very opaque term. It's very unclear of what that actually is. What is it for you, Katja? You 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 curate a pop culture festival. You have some yeah. sense of what you what yeah, you capture with that. Yes, for us, we say in Germany it's popular music, and popular music really means all the genres that are not um, the pure classical music or the pure jazz or neue Musik like Stockhausen and so on. So for us, that means really everything from experimental music, electronic music, um, heavy metal, hip-hop, and everything. So it's much more than only pop like Madonna or pop like, um, yeah, you know what I mean? So it's really, it's, it's, it's a bit more and it's also a culture. And that's the reason why we um, called our festival Pop Culture, because it means that you can also, yeah, show a lot of, different things not only the pure pop music mm, absolutely yeah i think that's that's already great to sort of see that it's either a cover term that that really uh combines a lot of things or it's a specific genre within that and no self-respecting rock musician would say i'm doing pop music you know so it's a there there's a distinction but actually to promote popular music within a within a city or a context it makes sense to to use it in this in this in, in the way you, that you do when Dushka, for you, when I mean, you've you've dealt with oral and oral dramaturgies, some of which are clearly influenced by or inspired by by pop, whether it's pop music or pop even as a as a broader term of you know encompassing things like fashion or or, or a certain visual style or a Lebensgefühl, as we say in, in in Germany, sort of a particular lifestyle or something. How, how did you? Where where would you? Where would you find pop in theatre? Can theatre be pop, or is theatre almost the other? You know, which is you were saying classical music as the other, and is theatre always sort of bourgeois? And yeah, it's a very good question. I think uh, I think maybe what um, my perspective on this coming out of this research that that I've been immersed in for the last few years 
uh, is that really what we are witnessing is a certain, let's call it, uh, paradigm shift mm. um, in how theater might um, kind of uh, be putting itself across as a form that increasingly integrates popular culture as part of its mechanism of communicating to the audience. That's the thesis, I guess, of what I'm trying to say. But, but you know, of course, pop, uh, like Katya has just explained, could be defined differently. It's the American scholar Philip Auslander actually makes a distinction between uh, uh, you know, the words pop and rock. Um, uh, and he explains that the British, in the British uh, context, uh, popular music is or pop is kind of like the the umbrella term like Katya has just described that includes all the other subgenres within it but in the American context um, <coughs> pop is used as a or at least by this writer as a kind of ideological other as he calls it to rock music and then he kind of creates definitions of how pop and rock are different mm -hmm. from each other but nonetheless your question really is more about I think I think basically my, my conclusion in relation to what theater does with that is that by integrating it into its sort of mechanism of making it, it sort of blurs the boundaries as well mm -hmm. it um, kind of exposes the audience to a different way of listening yeah. to what we might be used to absolutely I'm, I'm thinking while he was talking about this I'm thinking of directors who sort of use like a playlist dramaturgy, you know, they, they very much um, embrace the ubiquity, but also the, the shared cultural attachment to certain pop songs and, you know, and, and construct whole theatre experiences sometimes based on a, on, a, on, a, on a play, which is then infused by a more popular, more sort of contemporary feel, or sometimes even when they do like a devised theatre piece, what we would call Stückentwicklung in, in, in German, they might even construct it around a sequence of certain songs. What does that replace? Is that sort of a, a, a saying goodbye to narrative um, dramaturgies, dramaturgies of character development, etc.? Do you have examples in mind where music plays that role, where it sort of structures a yeah. theatrical evening, and, and, and what's, what does it differently then? Yeah, we can yeah. actually look at it, we can historically... So gig theatre is one thing that um, you know, I specifically write about. It's a genre that's emerged in the UK maybe over the last 10 years, but actually it has a slightly longer history because the first term that the word gig theatre was used uh, to refer to a theatre production was in Ireland in 2002. At least that's as far as uh, my research has taken me. And it's simply a form of theatre, gig theatre in the British context and let's say the Irish context is uh, a form of theatre where which, which has um, the dramaturgy of a uh, of a play, but uh, the mise-en-scene of uh, a music gig. Mm. So there is this relinquishing of the representational aesthetic where, you know, the only, the only sort of frame, visual frame we are getting is what we recognize as, as the music gig, the amplifiers, the microphones, the drum kit, but actually we might be being told the story in that. Now that, that I think in terms of the question you've just asked me, is really kind of the end point where we've arrived. But of course we've arrived to this point via a number of different routes. And one route might have been, uh, people often ask me what's the difference between musical and, and gig theatre, what's the difference between cabaret and gig theatre. And, and actually I think the difference is really that 
and we've had those um, kind of different ways of structuring the theater experience using music, using playlists to kind of convey something to the audience. But I think in, in some of these instances of gig theater, what is actually going on is that theater makers are really rethinking um, the division of labor on the stage. So what we're getting is a uh, kind of code switching where the performers are both musicians and actors at the same time. And they might be rethinking the conventions by which they engage the audience in this experience. And so the audience might be fi finding itself to be code switching between being an audience in a music gig and an audience in a piece of theatre. But yeah, it's quite a complex question. There are many variations to it. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, in some ways, what we're looking at here with the examples of geek theatre is sort of a meeting point between you know, uh, theatre becoming more pop or theatre becoming more sort of leaning towards concert. But from, from your end of the, the spectrum, as it were, you will have seen a lot of pop going theatrical. You will have seen artists um, embracing persona, embracing ways of staging their concerts, ways of um, playing with theatre. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? What Have you seen developments recently in, in, in Berlin or beyond Berlin where this has become yeah become more of a of a thing to to think about staging, to think about the confines of this is a concert and where do I take this and what do I do with the audience? Yeah, I think um we learned a lot of um countries like um France because they really um embraced the music in the theatres a lot more than, than we did it in Germany or in Great Britain as well. So I think we are still on a on a way, and um, as always, we need the spaces to do to do stuff like this. And therefore, it's a very good idea to go to the Schwutz from Rainer and Komische Oper to to pick up a, a space like like a queer club to to bring ideas of the Komische Oper to a to a new audience and, and another audience maybe. For us, um, for the Pop Culture Festival, we we decided once few years ago to do these commissioned works. So it's like a bit like the idea of gig theater, which means that we ask musicians, what else do you want to do than just doing a simple concert or going on tour? So do you have a specific idea on, yeah, maybe a persona or maybe on whatever you wanted to tell us? So we had Masha Kurella. She's a, she's a very cool musician in uh, in Berlin, and she worked with Thomas Brasch, uh, the author, and read all his lyrics and plays and stuff like this, and then made a very, very um, interesting play for one hour, one and a half, talking about feeling the life of Thomas Brasch and telling us what's her approach to, to this um, author. So... For us, it's more like really asking musicians, um, maybe performing in a new way, working with uh, with dancers, with performers, really making more than a simple concert. And therefore, really, this is really a new thing a bit because giving them a budget and telling them, okay, you can do whatever you want. At the end, we need something on stage and it's a premiere and then after this you can go and do with this premiere whatever you want. So it's yours. It would be nice if you say it's 
brought to you by pop culture or music board or whatever, but then you, you really have something like a new show. And I saw a lot of um, these things um, in France because they are really working a lot on this and they're giving a lot of money to musicians and encouraging them to do to do work like this. What I'm interested in is 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 the theater element. Let's for, for for lack of a better word, is that an add-on? I mean, do you, does an artist go? I've got this playlist. I've got these arrangements. I've got these pop songs or rock songs, and now I'm adding makeup and a costume let's put it you know or, or, or a video or something or a dancer or something or does it actually sort of feed back into the music do they in 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 putting in sort of adding a, a, a sense of performance and a sensitivity about what well, yeah as you said what story do i want to tell is this just a sequence of songs or is it is it more than that and what what is the more in that does that impact back on actually we should rearrange that and this should be just a cappella or whatever it might be. In the in the best of the worlds, yes. It's not a it's not like one way street. They always say like Stiebchen Theater. <laughs> you know, that you see one and then this and then this and then you've got a song and then you've got a video and then a dancer. This is really boring. For the audience I think it's it's much more interesting for sure and it's more arty for sure. If you if you see something really um as a how to say, sixty minutes full of energy with a new play with something really you've not seen before and not something like, okay, yes, a video, a song, a dancer. This is really boring. So I, I think you need really artists um, which are interested in um, really um, bringing new stuff together and really creating something new. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that's a because as an audience, I, I, I suspect um, there's always quite a dramatic change. Even if someone just says a few lines about a song, it, it frames the song in a different way, and we may understand it in a different way. It may be infused with a new or different meaning. And likewise, I mean, the other way around, if we see a theater scene or a monologue or something, and there's a particular song preceding it or coming after it, uh, which may comment on it very heavily uh, or, or may shift the mood around, around whatever's happening, I'm, I'm sure that's something you will have observed in this in this kind of very auditory culture of theatre that people are not just thinking of, oh, we need to have a transition here, we need to illustrate what has just happened with a song that sort of does the same thing, but actually adds a, a whole new dimension. Do, can you think of examples of that? Is that something you've encountered? Actually, I keep thinking, I don't know whether this answers your question, but one thing that's been on my mind in just thinking about this particular encounter and where we are and so on. I've, I've been thinking about um, Wim Wenders' uh, Wings of Desire and the way in which it kind of has this sort of found object of a Nick Cave concert in it. Okay, we can interpret then, you know, what the function of that is in, in the dramaturgy of that film and the narrative, you know, progression of that story. But we can also think about it um, as just uh, being part of the landscape of Berlin, you know, at that moment in time. And um, the extent to which, again, that integration of popular culture uh, has been seamless. And, you know, even though we've had sort of this idea that, you know, rock um, and, and punk and post-punk have been kind of countercultures, you know, we've moved on to the point where they just become part of the mainstream. Uh, one, one sociologist whose work I've been reading, uh, Joseph Kotarba, has been talking about how pop and rock music used to be the youth culture, and now it's just 
adult culture. It's just, you know, we, the youth has grown up, so it's, it's just part of what we consider to be our culture, you know, and yeah. Talking about sound again, so just to bring it back to that question, I, I kind of um, suggested that pop music um, was perhaps defined more than other things by sound, you know. I mean, obviously also by other things such as a look or a, or a particular feel or something. I mean, certainly in certain historical developments of pop that that was a very important thing also how people dressed and how they behaved etc etc but i think the history of pop music is probably not the history of melodic development or of intricate chord changes or something i'm not saying that all pop music is simplistic in that area there are very good examples of where it isn't um but normally the thing that we think about is is is, is people developing a distinct sound what i'm wondering on the other hand is um a maybe katya i don't know if you if you because it's a very tr tricky thing to to sort of pin down what makes that sound? Can you describe from your from your perspective? When does a, when to your ears does a, an artist or a band sound unique? When do when have they found their sound? And I'll follow up with a question to you, which you can think about. When when does a theatre ensemble or a, or a directorial team or even an actor have found their sound? When do when do we recognise them by by their sound? When when does that become a distinctive feature? Katya, first. <laughs> Oof, yes. Oof, yeah, um, no. <laughs> We've got a this big um, scholarship residency program at Music Board, and normally per year there's only one deadline. It's the first of March, so we've got twelve residencies abroad and stuff like this. And the last time we got for the for the the last year over eight hundred applications from musicians only in Berlin. So it's only in Berlin from Berlin, and they and then at the end we've got fifty maybe scholarships and and then a few residencies abroad. I'm also part of the jury, and I do this for a very long time in my life, hearing a lot of music, a lot of new music, and also hearing yeah, bands or persons or musicians, um, musicians in the, the fields of electronic music starting and then um, seeing them growing or not, or seeing them playing festivals or not, and what's going on in their career. And this is really, this is very much interesting because sometimes you've got bands, we've got a famous band and famous band in Berlin called Isolation Berlin. And that was one of the first bands we um, helped with, with money to, to bring out their first album and so on. And they really sounded like Rio Reiser. I don't know if anybody in Germany, everybody I think knows Rio Reiser. And asking the, the, the singer and composer, are you, you, your sound is like Rio Reiser. And he said, who is Rio Reiser? No, I think he was, it was a bit, yeah, I don't know. I think he, he, he did know. And then after that, the music, I think they, what they are doing is um, just taking a bit from this side. What I really like, there's another, because I just heard Sleaford Mods, maybe you know Sleaford Mods from this very rough, punky, critical um, um, British two guys and they are very angry and upset. it's really upsetting and I really like them <laughs> as I like some hip-hop artists because of being critical because of being naming injustice because of being um, loud and creating something new like, I don't know, Kendrick Lamar, for example, or Haiti, she's, she's cool, or Planning to Rock, or 
So I think it is always about bringing your limbic system, I would say your neurons in a new, in a struggle. That's for me what I like. Interesting, yeah. Great. Dushka, what do you, yeah, <laughs> when, do, when, when does theater sound unique? When does it have a recognizable yeah. sound? Well, or? I guess only when, you know, the artist or the company uh, choose sound as their <laughs> sort of main uh, point of, sure. of, yeah. of, of what they call the main aspect of their uh, performance idiom. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, theater is not just, I mean, theatre is interdisciplinary by its nature. It's uh, it's something that kind of includes the different aspects of meaning making, and to different extents, of course. I mean, if we think of a company like a British company called Nihai, uh, they are a company that um, um, have kind of they they no longer exist. They existed between 1980 and just last year. Um, they existed in rural Cornwall and defined themselves against the mainstream and kind of made uh, performances that um, were site-specific, community-oriented. And uh, what was quite distinctive about their performance idiom was this resort to DIY as a way of making theatre. A lot of their sets often had a DIY feel. And their music, and music was quite important in their shows. Yeah, why just to translate? Uh, the, do, do it, it yourself. yourself. Yeah, so very yeah. low tech. Low tech, that's Find right. Find something in the shed and make they, something. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And so they, they, I mean, for example, they would use washboards as a way of making music. And, you know, a company like that, you might, you know, you might talk about their uh, sound especially also because they had a member of the company who was you know their composer and musical director and had a distinctive musical uh, kind of idiom that was added added to their performance idiom um, as a whole but I, I don't know i don't know whether we can do that with every other i mean what what do you think Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so glad i'm getting to no um no, I, th I think it's, it's in both cases a very complex conglomerate where in terms of pop music or, or popular music, it's, it's such a mixture of instrumentation, I think, is, is you know, it's a, there's a difference between obviously a bass, guitar, drum set band and a sort of more lots of keyboards or something, you know, that's just different different kinds of sounds. And then vocal sounds, you know, some singers just have very distinct voices. You were talking about Rio Reiser as a very distinct voice. Um which, which, which is part of the appeal of that. But also I think it's the mixing also and, and who records that. It was, it's something that we sometimes, I think, underestimate how much the sound of a band is made in the, in the mixing process rather than just in the, in the recording process. I think it's, it's a mixture. And in terms of theatre, again, I, I would completely agree. It's sometimes ensembles have actually something like a resident composer or, or a particular style of creating music together, a particular vocal style. I'm thinking of... Gardenija is a Polish sort of uh, theatre company. Other companies or other directors, I'm, I was talking this afternoon uh, to a colleague about Ulrich Rasche, who's probably in Berlin quite well known as a director, and this combination of him using musicians, composers who compose very minimalist music, which is sort of a very well, minimalist sort of touch to it, combined with a very declamatory, insistent way of speaking, a particular vocal delivery of the lines, you know, quite... You either love it or, or or leave it because it's it's not you know it's it's getting it's very intense. Let's put it that way. 
um, and with that rhythm of walking on stage. So again, I mean, that's, that bleeds into the visual aesthetic, but, but it kind of comes with an appeal and you would, if you saw a one minute clip of a Ulrich Rasche show, then you would probably say, ah, this, this must be Ulrich Rasche. Or many of you will be familiar with Christoph Martala, of course, and there's a certain style of singing of the actors and a certain delivery there and a certain slowness. So I think that there, there are factors, but it is, it is, um, it's, it's hard to pin down, but I'm, I'm just curious how we sometimes forget. We, I think we describe theater and even pop music sometimes through visual imagery through a certain appeal through a certain persona someone who dresses in a particular way who who has a particular kind of persona and and is is also to do with venues and acoustics and i was just going to come to the the question of, of spaces uh you, you were you were alluding that to uh, to that katya that you said gig theater or, or or this kind of any kind of fusion between theater and pop and concert it also needs different venues if you if you go to the Berliner Ensemble or something, I think it's a very different kind of thing. You need a kind of club venue, it seems almost, for it to work. Or have you seen examples where that clash can actually be productive? We've got this um, tradition in, in Berlin with the Volksbühne and with the Hebel am Ufer, the Hau, um, where we saw the, the, the last years a lot of popular music and concerts and stuff and a bit like gig theater or commissioned works at their um, houses and that really works very well and the, the audience really loved this going to places like Foxbühne and Howe and I think um, I think if you if you want to um, engage um, and empower new audiences for your opera houses and for your really old houses doing this for sure good stuff But I think if you if you really want to attach the new audience, you you have to work like this, um, and that doesn't mean that you have to show every pop musician in your theater. But if you really um, open your house and try to really try to set up new stuff, and also being political, because we are living in a very Uh, political um, world right now and I think you have to open your houses for new persona and persons on stage therefore again it's a very good idea to go to, to the Schwutz and the, and the queer club too with the Komische Oper and to do stuff here really to, to check up who is your audience and do you, do you really need to be an academic person to go to the opera house or to go to Komische Oper or to go to Philharmonie and And why are there so many borders for so many people not going there? Because they are afraid of, oh, am I the right person here? And I'm not, I wasn't, I didn't study and so on. And you have to, as a, as a, as a venue and, a, and the big houses, you have to open your doors, I think. And you have to make really good offers. Yeah. Very good. I have an answer to that. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mentioned earlier the the term gig theater um, was proposed, offered by an Irish artist called Donald O'Kelly back in 2002. And this was a, an actor who had written a play deliberately to kind of perform it as if it was set in a pub, you know, to have the intimacy of, you know, with the audience and the relaxed atmosphere. And it was a piece that was primarily uh, emphasizing the spoken word and music. And 
However, the piece was programmed as the opening act of the Dublin Festival that year. So it failed um, in its reception amongst the critics because the critics were just a bit confused uh, by you know, what this piece was trying to do with these black limousines outside and it being performed in this way. And that was mentioned in some of the reviews. And so it was a bit of a failure and the term sort of fell into oblivion. Um, and then it was resurrected quite gradually. Um, I'm not quite sure who was the first to start using it. I think it was being used by word of mouth at the Edinburgh Festival around the year 2010. And it was used to describe pieces of theater that were um, that had this sort of do-it-yourself aesthetic to some extent. You know, they were often made by ensembles on shoestring budgets but they were emphasizing live music uh, combined with storytelling. Sometimes also dance was part of that. So we are not talking about mainstream theaters. We are talking about tents. We are talking about rigged up venues at the Edinburgh Festival. I believe that part of the way in which gig theater is a, let's say, genre, if we can call it that, emerges, is also linked to this... Um, production model um, that kind of emerged uh, in, the, in the festival circuit. Very often these young theatre companies were making this work to be performed at um, the Glastonbury Festival, at the Latitude Festival, at uh, the Leeds and Reading Festival, at the Edinburgh Festival. So it was, they were, these were works that were made for the touring circuit and therefore they had to have light um, sets, you know, and actually the, the touring of, of music equipment was already well developed anyway. So, so in a way, I think venue is, as you say, quite crucial to this. And, and venues like this actually can be seen to have influenced or, or in a way contributed to the development of this new aesthetic, if you like, because there are artists like uh, Lucy McCormick, we talked about, um, who is quite an interesting artist. She doesn't call her work gig theatre necessarily, but what she does probably falls into this space in between queer art scene and classical theatre because she's a classically trained actress but she also develops her own work in spaces like this and her first piece that she made was called Triple Threat uh, quite um, deliberately you know um, uh, sort of con conveying this idea of, of, of a multi-talented performer but actually being performed you know, in a very, very ironic way with uh, supermarket items and so on. Because gig theatre sits sort of some, somewhere between concerts and theatre and um, experimental stuff and, and all that, does it play with, with the more established genres such as the musical or, or as you said, the cabaret? Or where, where do you think does it flirt with other genres and does that sometimes confuse people or is, is that part of its appeal that it kind of sets you somewhere on edge or somewhere uneasy about what am I watching here? What is this? What I've been talking about here is very much what's emerged from the British context. Yeah. But it's not necessarily just a British phenomenon. We've seen uh, artists, uh, theatre artists, uh, using these, this sort of mise-en-scene in other cultures too, like Aris Vignaris in... Um, in Greece, um, then Lola Arias has uh, her famous piece that, that maybe falls into that category is Minefield, which she made with the veterans of the Falklands War. 
But then we could ask things like, is Hamilton a gig theatre mm -hmm. piece or is it a musical? Because, you know, uh, because of, of its choice of the musical idiom, you know, and because of the way in which it uh, centers marginalized uh, histories and marginalized communities and so on. I don't have an answer to that. I think it's, I, I think it's good that that question arises. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's an act, it's a kind of an act of subversion, a very a commercially very successful one. <laughs> mm -hmm. But why not? Yeah. You know. I wanted to ask also uh, about creative processes, about the, the the ways in which these things come to to light. And you've talked a bit about DIY aesthetic and about sort of a certain yeah a certain style of theatre making, which is improvised and on the on the fly and not necessarily heavily subsidized or funded which also by the way has of course an impact on sound you know if you if you play with cheap available equipment which you have to carry from festival to festival it'll it'll have a certain appeal uh, and that sometimes is a very conscious choice to sound a bit lo-fi you were talking about commissions Katya about sort of the the way in which you try to get artists to perhaps invent something a bit new or, or position themselves also perhaps in a slightly less conventional way. Because I guess there is a certain standard procedure for a band, you know, write your songs, you, you do a demo tape, send it to a record company, ideally, you know, get it commissioned, record the thing, again, go on tour. There's a certain sort of rhythm and a certain, this is how you do it. And I, it seems like you're, you're interfering with that in a creative way. Can you talk a bit about that? How do you change those processes and what are the outcomes? very happy that we are working with uh, Pamela Schlewinski because she she's a dramaturg and she worked for the theater most of their life before. She worked at the Volksbühne with Kastorf and then for a lot of years with Vigard Winge and Ida Müller. I don't know if they, you know them from Norway. I'm really the biggest fan of these persons because they do a very radical theater about eight hours, ten hours. I don't know. And I maybe I saw maybe 200 hours of them, of their shows, I don't know. And Pamela, she worked with them. She came to, to pop culture and she's working with the musicians on a certain level and really on a, I would say, something like a three-dimensional way because she's always got the stage in her mind. And therefore, someone like Pamela is really very much important to to talk to the musicians, to to ask them to make offers, um, how to build up the stage and so on and so on. Now we will see, I'm yeah, really experienced to see Malonna. She was one of our um, alumna from MusicBot as well and she went to a residency in Paris and Albertina Zagas yesterday, she was also an alumna and um, so I'm really excited to see what uh, Malonda did with this diva thing because I know that this is a very important thing for her talking about Hildegard Knef, talking about divas, talking about this. And um, I'm really interested how she she worked on this. And yeah, at the end, it's it really depends on the um, characters. Um, so sometimes it works and sometimes not. Is, is gig theatre or can gig theatre be a more political medium than, than other forms of concerts and or theater i see the political in everything <laughs> because yes you know we are it is it is what it is um sitting here talking about what are you talking about and who is talking and who's talking to whom everything is political it is just talking about um justice in culture or justice 
on stages, um, in, in justice, on big houses, you have to talk about um, political situations. So who has got access to, to culture, to books, to Shakespeare, and so on? You could say everybody because you just can go on the, in the internet and you can, you can read everything. You can read Shakespeare and so on. But if you never heard about it or never heard about, I don't know, who, Tom, Thomas Brasher or whatever. So you will never do this. And how can we bring this, the culture we, we love or the culture other people love to, um, on the ground so that everybody can apply for fundings, apply for scholarships, And, um, even if you, if you're not common in, in, in reading, um, academic texts and so on. So I think we have to learn so much. And gig theater, like all the forms of culture we have could be good examples because we are all persons we can just think about. We can talk to our audience. We can talk to marginalized groups asking them. What do you think? What do you need, um, really to go to an opera house or to go to the Volksbühne or to go to, I don't know where and vice versa. So I think this is really so much political and it has to change because we are still living in Germany. It's still really, you, we've got all these studies saying who is really, um, consuming culture or so called high High culture, Hochkultur, and, and why is it like this? So we have really, we have to share knowledge. Yeah, there's a lot of thresholds there, isn't there? Um, and, and one of the defining things about pop is, is the accessibility. It's, it's, it's something that is easy to access for everyone. That's at least the idea. And, you know, nobody would sign, oh, I don't listen to pop music because I'm not sure I understand it. You know, nobody would say that. But with theatre and opera, you hear that all the time. And, and I, I, I think, I agree. I think, I think, um, I think uh, gig theatre is inherently political and has the power to be, I mean, it depends very much on what, you know, what a particular piece is doing. But I think it, its power to be political is contained in the ways in which it engages the audience. Mm -hmm. um, and it is deliberately a different way of wanting to engage the audience. It is not just pandering to audiences as music fans. It treats, treats the audience as theatre audience, but appeals to their knowledge or appreciation or familiarity with particular uh, popular music um, content in order to put them in a position where um, they are able to, as I said at the beginning, code switch between being a music fan and a theater audience, and that creates a space for them to engage with this content, I think, I hope, in a way that gets them to ask questions or to think through what is going on and why. I also think, if, if, if I may add, I think in an ideal world, it, it combines a sort of an intellectual... Uh, activity with a very sort of uh, you were talking about the limbic system with a with a sort of physical emotional activity you know theater can do that as well but sometimes that the sheer energetic joy of hearing a band going you know full throttle is just something that that will engage you physically in a different way will emotionalize you and if you combine that with a particular topic whether it is something that causes anger or contemplation or whatever it might it may just be something that sticks. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming, for your interest. Thank you so much to Katja and Dushka.
And thank you again to Julia, Rainer, the whole team of the Komische Oper and the Schall und Rausch Festival. And uh, enjoy the rest of the night, whether it's here or somewhere else. Thank you.